Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope you are staying sane in this busy holiday season. I'm so glad to have Matthew Bernstein back once again. He is the incoming editor of the Wild West History Association Journal and was on the show in early 2023 to chat about his George Hurst book, At the end of that interview, he mentioned he had another book coming out this past fall called Hanging Charlie Flynn, The Short and Violent Life of the Boldest Criminal in Frontier, California. And he is here to talk about that book today. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. Great to be here, Eric. So Charlie Flynn is a name that pops up peripherally in books about the Old West, right? but he is definitely not a household name. Yeah, he primarily is known through his alias Charles Mortimer, and he often finds himself in Wild West studies, uh, particularly about uh, San Quentin and robberies, as kind of a color commentary guy, because he had a jailhouse memoir that he wrote, and He mentions a lot of the big players, both criminals and lawmen, Uh, but no one had actually done up his story in a full-fledged history and biography, which I thought was almost criminal. Uh, So I decided I would write that one. So how, how did you get a hold of his memoir? All right. So Charlie writes this uh, jailhouse memoir Uh, when he's in Sacramento County Jail. And it's published shortly before the end, shall we say. Though the title of the book, Hanging Charlie Flynn, pretty much tells you where the book is going. So he publishes the book, and it's published in Sacramento, and there's about a thousand copies, and it's disseminated through the country. But the book was edited in such a strange way that most people didn't find it readable. Uh, They started with uh, the big law case and the trial in Sacramento, and then they go into Charlie's uh, story. You know, in the beginning, in the law story, he didn't actually write it. It was the lawyers who kind of explained what happened. And then Charlie goes through his childhood. And uh, I read that and said, well, we're not starting with Charlie as a kid We're not starting with the law trial. Like, let's start where it actually gets good and fun. Let's start with his brother trying to break him out of jail. And then let's go uh, into the midst of the Civil War 
when he gets out of jail and is in Virginia City and forms his own gang. So the book is disseminated throughout the country. You can only find like four or five copies right now. Uh, there's a copy in the Library of Congress. There's a copy in the Huntington Research Library in San Marino, where I photographed the first half of it. I photographed the second half of it in John Bosnecker's collection. He's the great Western historian. Um, he got his original version, which he photocopied at UC Berkeley, which has a copy. There's a copy in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the New York Historical Society has a copy themselves. Those are the only copies I know exist, except for one copy that was sold in Sacramento a number of years ago and sold for about $1,000. Interesting. So tell us about Charlie Flynn, where he was born, and what brought him to California. Okay. Well, Charlie Flynn was born in the Green Mountains of Vermont in 1834. His family moves around to Massachusetts. Uh, Dad is a tailor. There's a number of children. He's got about four brothers, two sisters. One dies very early on. Clothing catches on fire. Um, he narrates all of this. He's a bad kid in school, well-educated, uh, very charming, uh, can read, write very well, has his own style, kind of becomes the, uh, the leader of like a gang of hoodlums. And as you're reading his uh, adventures as a child and as a young man, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. You're like, oh, so he's the leader? How convenient writing this in your own book. So what I was able to do was I was able to find early histories and newspaper articles that would, if they didn't track Charlie at that time, because he was very elusive as a young man, um, they'd be able to track his uh, criminal companions. And later in life, uh, he became so notorious in California that uh, police and newspapers were tracking his every movement, at least when they could find him. At one point, uh, Mark Twain called him, I'm paraphrasing, the worst man in the state and the uh, top San Francisco policeman, Isaiah W. Lees, kind of seconded that. So his movements were fairly well known. As a young man, he uh, got into more and more trouble. Um, he was eventually kicked out of school for pantsing the school teacher. And it wasn't just that he was left in his boxer shorts, like everything was out. He would carry on with uh, a number of ladies until his girlfriend got mad at him. Um, he becomes part of a, uh, a criminal band operating outside of Boston and throughout New England. And uh, they're doing house robberies. Uh, they're stealing furniture. They're fencing it to a known guy in Boston. With the money, he'll take a girl up to uh, Portland, Maine and have like a wonderful time. And then every so often, he'll calm down and he'll go back to a dear old mom and he'll be a tailor for a while. And then he'll get antsy again and he'll start up his criminal career. Ultimately, uh, they send him to a boy's home for a while um, after he's caught. And then he's caught again. Uh, stealing furniture out of a house when he just wanted to push it a little far. He kind of like overstayed his welcome. He realized later 
in this small town. Um, but they catch him and they give him a year in jail. And he does not like that one bit. Um, it's very puritanical. It's very much uh, something Nathaniel Hawthorne would write about. You know, like they're given the, uh, the black mark, like almost like the scarlet letter. And uh, he gets out of there finally and after about a year. And he has trouble finding a job and there's a bit of a stigma on him. So it's 1858 and he decides, okay, what I'll do is I'll join the Navy and he goes to New York city and he joins up and they uh, sail around the horn and he uh, doesn't like uh, some of his shipmates. He eventually jumps ship. Uh, He has some misadventures in Brazil where again, he meets up with some like-minded fellows and they start robbing and stealing. He nearly gets caught. He, uh, joins up again with the U.S. Navy um, at the USS Saranac and sails into San Francisco. And he looks around, and it looks like paradise to Charlie. No one knows his real name. Crime is rampant. Uh, Law enforcement is not so much. um, And all of California has all sorts of small towns where a guy like Charlie knows how to operate as a thief, a pickpocket and a highwayman. And that's the adventure he embarks upon. You describe him in the book as five foot eight, blue eyes, auburn hair, kind of a good looking guy, right? And mm-hmm. he's able to use his charm to great effect in his exploits. Yeah, he, uh, he was very charming. His signature move was to talk some new friend into having a few drinks and then they're carousing and, you know, they're wandering around the city and maybe Charlie will say something like, you know, like I'm just in for the night from the East and uh, my wife, you know, has tickets to the play, but I've got some business. Would you mind escorting my wife to the play? I'll give you the free ticket. And, you know, the bumpkin will be like, Oh yeah, that sounds like fun. And then they get, they turn down a dark alley and then bam, it's knife to the throat, your money or your life. And, you know, usually he uh, enjoys robbing uh, drunk people because they can't fight back as well. And Charlie knows how to hold his liquor. And he prefers more than that to rob sleeping people. He really loves, uh, (laughs) loves it when they fall asleep, usually drunk. And uh, there's a number of love affairs in the book. He does rather well though with the his grand love affair she too is a kleptomaniac and it gets them both into hot water so it was in san francisco in 1862 when flynn was arrested by detective ben bowen what for well that caper um occurred when uh, charlie was more or less looking to sail back Uh, to New England. Um, He needed a little bit more money. Oftentimes he would think like, it's time to go back to dear old mom. But there are always circumstances that would stop that. So in this situation, he wanders into a bar and he sees kind of a handoff going off with the uh, bartender and a stranger. It looks like a sack of money. And he sits down to observe this and he notices that some other patrons have also observed this. 
And they kind of get into a little bit of a discussion, like, okay, what's the story here? They size each other up. They realize, okay, we're all after this bag of money. Let's act upon it. But, you know, this is no Mission Impossible caper where they've figured out what to do. They're just going to like, okay, Charlie, you ingratiate yourself and you start walking down. If there's any trouble as, you know, you're walking through the dark street at night with the guy with the bag of money, we'll step in. As it turns out, there is trouble. First of all, Charlie passes Detective Ben Bowen, who's a rookie. And he's like in the stoop of his house and he sees these people walking and talking and Bowen kind of eyes this and thinks maybe there should be trouble. And he sees the other two guys tailing as well. And ultimately Charlie tries to slip the roll as he calls it, you know, like do the old uh, bump and grab, you know, like stumbles into the guy and picks his pocket at the same time. But our bartender, sees what's happening, says, you know, like, you've taken my money. They get into a scuffle. Charlie eventually wrenches the bag from it and uses the bag to, like, beat the guy over the head. The guys come running, probably to assist, but then Detective Ben Bowen shows up as well, and is a he's a muscular guy. He separates them, he arrests everybody, and Charlie's new pals... Uh, when it goes to court, turn on him and say, like, no, we were innocent bystanders. Charlie had this idea, you know, like, he's your guy. He's the uh, he's the criminal here. So they uh, throw Charlie in San Quentin State Prison for a year. But again, he gets to use his alias because no one knows him on the West Coast. So Charles Mortimer is who goes to jail. Charlie Flynn is a memory back in Boston. You used a bit of period slang just now, and for listeners interested in that sort of thing, you do include at the end of your book a glossary of criminal slang, which was a lot of fun to read. Yeah, yeah, I was always uh, very interested in uh, noir slang, hard-boiled slang, you know, like with the uh, hard-boiled detectives and criminals from the 1920s and 30s sort of thing, uh, you know, Dashiell Hammett would write about. And uh, when I saw that Charlie's lingo was full of this, I decided, well, that's something I really want to emphasize. You know, Mark Twain loved to use uh, the authentic uh, dialect as well. I always have it in quotes. Um, But there's really fun stuff in there. Instead of uh, keep your eyes peeled, the thing to say was keep your lamps peeled. Uh, Another one is uh, slough him up with the gopher. At one point, they're robbing... Uh, treasury and they've got the treasurer there it's late at night you know there's only charlie his companion and the treasurer and his companion says you know or charlie says what should we do with him and his companion says slough him up with the gopher and you know charlie knows that that means lock him up in the vault but nobody else would know that so i made sure that uh (laughs) you know that is there you know and it's a it's fairly interesting that He's got this whole uh, dialect uh, down pat that has mostly gone the way of the dodo. Right, right. Uh, is it scrooging or scrudging when, when someone is in the process of, of dying? Scrooging. Just one. Yeah. That was in the same scene um, where, you know, like they were hoping that uh, the treasurer 
wooden Scrooge inside the vault, if I recall. Yep. Uh, that was cool because we had a number of uh, hardened criminals um, that were able to use this uh, form of, you know, English of criminalese um, between themselves and other people wouldn't pick up on it. Right. And there's definitely some scrooging going on in this book, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, leaves town and then he comes back to San Francisco, correct? Yeah. Um, once he's locked up, he's in San Quentin, uh, he's let out, and it's 1863 when he decides, okay, people kind of know me a little bit in San Francisco now, and he didn't have much uh, luck getting a job, so he decides, like so many others, thousands of people, to head to Virginia City, Nevada. And Virginia City has struck silver. Prominently, George Hurst, the subject of my last biography, uh, was one of the first people on the grounds that enriched themselves with silver. Uh, but now everyone's getting in on the action. And one of the themes of the book is, you know, when you have a bonanza, when you have a land of opportunity, as Virginia City was and post-Gold Rush California, it doesn't just attract the strapping young men who want to go west and, you know, dig riches out of the ground and, you know, build new lives. You also get the wolves, you get the villains, you get people like Charlie Flynn. Uh, so Charlie gets to Virginia City and he has a number of small time capers, you know, where he rap, robs a guy late at night. He runs into a guy who he knew in San Quentin. Uh, they strike up a partnership. And before long, he's the head of a gang of seven, uh, which will later be called the Mortimer Gang, once they figure out exactly who he is. And one of the fun aspects of the book is Mark Twain is there, uh, and he's just making the transition from Sam Clemens to Mark Twain, and Mark Twain is now writing for the Territorial Enterprise. And Twain sees that people are excited by crime, and Virginia City is rife with crime. So he's in the periphery at this time in the story. He'll become a bigger focus later. But in Virginia City, he's talking about a rash of crimes that is occurring, like a, a crime wave. And we know that one of the key players in this crime wave is Charlie Flynn himself. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So there's an incident that takes place in September 1864 in San Francisco. Uh, Flynn is bumming around a saloon when he sets his sights on a man named Charles Wigan. Who was Wigan and what was Flynn up to? Uh, Charles Wigan was the uh, mayor of San Francisco's right-hand man. He was technically a clerk, uh, but he was looking to rise high in politics and in the legislature. He was in a prime position. And uh, Charlie had ingratiated himself with uh, crooked police officers. Some of them would tip him to what they would call a good job or a good Indian. Like a good Indian was a slang term for a good score, basically. Um, so Charlie knew a lot of money was about to pass hands. Uh, what uh, Charles Wigan was doing there was he was basically collecting money for the political campaign. Um, so it was a big party. Um, there were a lot of political donors there 
who were, you know, they, there's some evidence that they were writing checks, but they were also giving like lots of just cold, hard cash to Wigan, you know, that would ultimately, one would assume, go into a bank and would go into uh, the mayor's pocket, you know, maybe they're paying for influence, all that stuff. Uh, so Charlie goes into the bar and in no time flat, uh, he starts drinking it up and laughing and carousing with the other patrons. Um, he can speak very well. He's very suave and sophisticated when he wants to be. He loves disguises, so he doesn't always have his auburn hair. Um, oftentimes he'll color his beard or he'll shave his beard or he'll shave his head. Um, he's a little stout. If you got in a fight with him, you wouldn't want to be in a fight with him. Whatever the case, as it happens, as it oftentimes does, Charlie's the last one in the bar uh, when his good Indian leaves. And he is escorting Wigan back to Wigan's place. And Wigan lives on Mina Street, which incidentally is the same street that Mark Twain was living on at the time. And Charlie, uh, Charlie Flynn here, slash Mortimer, walks him home, doesn't do anything. He bids him good night. And then he goes and gets breakfast. And he also gets his head shaved. And he comes back to Mina Street and he knocks on Wigan's door. And, oh, there's a young lady there. And she says, oh, uh, I don't think he's available right now. And Charlie laughs and says, oh, I, I know he's not available. See, I was with him last night. I could tell the state he was in. And that puts her at ease. But still, she's going to check with the mistress of the house, who says, oh, sure, let him in. And Charlie goes into the room, into Wiggins' room, and he puts a handkerchief over the doorknob so no one could peek through the keyhole. And Wigan is sleeping sweetly, as he explains, and Charlie proceeds to rifle through his stuff. He gets uh, a whole bunch of money, um, like 1500 is what it ultimately comes to with like the cash and the rings um, and so forth. Uh, Wigan is a mason. He steals his mason's mark. He paws through the checks, but he doesn't take the checks. It seems like that would probably be too much of a hassle. Um, he walks out the door the young lady says, uh, good morning, sir. And he says, good morning back to her. She says, uh, you know, how was Mr. Wigan? He's like, oh, he's got a bit of a headache, but he's going to try to sleep it off because he's got a little vein of humor in it, does Charlie. And <laughs> then he, he goes and he uh, shares some of the money with some poor orphans, as he tells us. And he goes to uh, one of the officers and he kind of pays the officer his cut. And then he skips town. Um, because he knows there's going to be a lot of detectives, this is a high-profile case now, uh, looking to see who robbed Charles Wigan. He doesn't want to be anywhere close. And yeah, uh, $1,500 in 1864 is over $50,000 today, so it's a sizable amount of money. Yeah, it was, it was a big score. We will be right back. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. 
Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So... A detective named George Rose was assigned to the case. A very colorful character. Can you tell us about him, how he ends up finding Flynn, and the lengths he goes to to try and recover the money stolen from Wigan? Yeah. One of the readers of the book actually said, you know, you got a great uh, article or book in George W. Rose himself, Detective Rose. His backstory is he also was from Massachusetts, so he's got that in common with uh, Charlie, and they kind of become each other's nemesis. Rose uh, finds one of Charlie's criminal companions on the street and arrests him, and that guy turns rat. How Charlie describes him is he turned traitor. Rose now hears that, okay, Charlie is living in this house in Belmont, which is south of San Francisco and it's very rural at the time. And people, detectives, had kind of figured that uh, this was probably Charlie's work. Uh, ben Bowen later says that you could see uh, Mortimer, because um, that's what they knew him as. You could see Mortimer's handiwork, his smooth finger tracks right through the job. Okay, so he was, you know, the prime suspect. And they were correct. And Rose gets the location of the house. And he goes down to Belmont with a stagecoach driver. And they get to what it turns out to be Mortimer's house. He'd been so successful with his robberies that if he didn't own the house, you know, at least he was uh, renting the whole thing. And he had a girlfriend stashed there and an old man that we can't really determine uh, what the old man was doing there. Um, but the old man will be out of the story soon because Rose knocks on the door and they say, no, Charlie's not here. And that's when Rose, that's all I wanted to know is like, okay, yeah, but this is his place. So he barges in and he starts searching the place and he finds uh, various items that connect uh, Charlie to the robbery of Wigan. And so Charlie decides like, okay, he's had enough fun, has the detective. So time to reveal myself. And he does. And Rose and Charlie have a private conversation away from the stagecoach driver or anyone else in the house. And the meat of it is uh, Rose is willing to play ball, you know, like let's get, give me the rest of the stuff and maybe I'll let you go. And Charlie is going to say, okay, 
Well, the stuff is buried in San Jose. Planted is the way Charlie calls it. And so they take a train to San Jose and they walk a mile into the middle of nowhere where Charlie has indeed buried the stuff. But Charlie doesn't think he's getting out of this unscathed. Worst case scenario, Rose is going to kill him. Slightly better is that he'll just be arrested and Charlie doesn't want any of that. So it's night and Charlie's got some matches and he's purposefully failing to light them. And imagine you're in these shoes. You've got to pretend that you're lighting matches and failing. So if it actually lit, that'd be a problem. But he's doing it really well. And eventually it's Rose who says, okay, let me show you how it's done. And Rose has got a couple pistols on him, but you know, you need two hands to light a match, to strike a match. And this is Charlie's opportunity. And bam, uh, suddenly hands around his throat. That's usually his move. Uh, scuffle, gun goes loose. Uh, the other gun is tucked, you know, beneath his, uh, uh, Rose's jacket. Can't get at it. Uh, there's a knife. Uh, Charlie, uh, slashes the guy's throat, beats him over the head. Rose sticks a hand in Charlie's face. Charlie bites down on Rose's little finger so hard that it is nearly severed and will be. He will become a nine-fingered detective when this is all said and done. Uh, Charlie beats him a little bit more. He's mad. He digs up uh, the plant, you know, like his money, and he disappears. Meanwhile, Rose eventually wakes up, and he can't stand. He's been beaten so badly. Um, he crawls about a mile to a farmhouse. And we know this because Mark Twain is Johnny on the spot. And once the uh, farmers call the police, Mark Twain writes up the whole caper in the San Francisco Daily Morning Call, which uh, Twain had transferred from, uh, from the territorial enterprise. Uh, so the whole thing goes what we would call viral at that point. Everyone knows it's Charlie with both the, the robbery of Wigan and the uh, beating of Detective Rose. And now the governor is offering money. All of San Francisco becomes a hornet's net of activity. Telegrams are flying. Uh, everyone in the Bay Area is searching for Charles Mortimer. Right. And not only that, there are people wondering what the heck Rose was doing out there with Flynn. <laughs> Why didn't he arrest him right away, uh, put him in jail? Right. What was going on? Yeah, so initially, the newspaper men, uh, Twain included, weren't going to touch that subject. Uh, but years later, so we'll go uh, a little further in without touching Charlie for a moment. So a number of years later, it's going to come to light that Rose is a crooked cop. Now, what he's been known for in San Francisco is walking the Chinatown beat. And he's had a number of experience where he's been assaulted with a cleaver and a knife, so forth, and he comes out on top. But when we got a new chief of detectives, they start looking at what's really going on here. And it turns out that for the most part, Rose has been paying someone else to walk his beat and hasn't been actually doing the job. All right, so Rose is unceremoniously fired. 
And then he sticks around San Francisco. This is about uh, 1868. And he becomes a private detective. And he finds that, okay, someone has robbed a gentleman of thousands of dollars. And Rose is able to track down the culprit. And they take a walk. And even though Rose has arrested him and it's in the papers, Rose now declares that this guy must be innocent, that I made a mistake. And everybody's like, well, doesn't this track with the Mortimer story too? Uh, Didn't he just pay you off to say that with the gold no one can find with the money that he robbed? And ultimately, uh, Rose is going to get tired of the attention and he's going to move to Salt Lake City. And then he will be arrested in Salt Lake City for a train robbery. Charlie kind of tracks this for the most part. And he says, I can't really speak too much about Rose after the whole Wigan affair is wrapped up because, you know, I didn't really know and I'm not going to cast dispersions. But one gets the feeling that uh, Charlie knows Rose has a bad reputation and He's not really going to bat for him, but he's not going to denigrate him any further, uh, particularly because, you know, he cost the guy his finger. <laughs> right. He, he definitely got the, the upper hand. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. So there is so much trouble Flynn gets into in, in this book, uh, capers, to use your word. But basically after this, he goes to Napa, meets up with a character named Black Jack Bowen. Mm-hmm. They form a gang. They're captured by a posse. He's sentenced to prison, but he escapes right almost immediately on his way there. Yeah. At this point in time, he's up in uh, Eureka. He and uh, a number of uh, Confederates, I mean Confederate-like companion, even though the Civil War is going on here, they start playing highwayman up in Northern California, and they cut this huge swath where they're uh, robbing and stealing and they're getting away with just about everything because the Civil War is in full swing. And a lot of Californians, of the uh, strapping young men who normally would serve as lawmen, have joined the California Brigade, which serves in uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, And Charlie and his friends are looking around and saying, like, we pretty much got the run of the place. So they're pulling wilder and wilder capers. Uh, They'll go into a store that actually, you know, has like 12 people in the store or so. And they rob everybody. They are blatant. You know, they're doing it uh, in front of witnesses. And they've kind of got like a hole in the wall hideout uh, called Cherokee Mary's. And Cherokee Mary will... She's known to uh, be sympathetic to highwaymen. Um, so they're operating a lot out of there. Um, at one point, they, uh, they rob a store late at night, and there's <laughs> what was the uh, Wild West alarm. Uh, the owner had you know, put a gun on a string so that you, know, you go in, the gun will, you, know, you pull the string, the gun will snap. But the gun, the shotgun didn't have enough powder powder had gotten wet. Anyways, it didn't fire. So they destroy everything in the store. And Charlie's all happy about that. Uh, He could be suave. 
He could be sophisticated from a distance. Uh, he can be enjoyable, but he was terrible to his victims. Sometimes he was actually a little lenient. Like if someone said, oh, that watch is an heirloom, he'd let them keep the watch. But yes, to your point, uh, they all get arrested. And very soon they're in, a, they're in Eureka. And Charlie and a few others are able to break out. They break out because he's able to pull out a wire and use that to pick his locks. And then he picks everybody's locks. And then they are able to lure the jailer in to the room um, and the jailer couldn't see through and he cracks open the door and they pull him in and they, they leave him his money and they tie him up. And Charlie says, we left him as comfortable as we could, but uh, there's four of them at this point and all four of them will ultimately be captured. Uh, Charlie makes it to Cherokee Mary's and it's the wrong way to go. Uh, because people have figured that must be where they're heading. And he knocks knocks on the door. Mary opens it, gives his hand a squeeze. And Charlie says later, I was so tired I didn't realize the signal. And a gun is placed to his head. He slams the door. He starts running uh, for safety. And uh, he is shot. And he gets a bullet in the cheek. And down he goes. And... He's then, uh, he's then rearrested, and they, taking no chances, they take him to uh, San Francisco on the way to San Quentin. And on the boat, Charlie is trying to talk to his captor and say, like, uh, you know, like, we don't, we don't need to go into San Francisco. Let's just, like, sleep on the boat. And it's like, no, we're going in. And the moment they step into, uh, you know, San Francisco jail, there is Detective George W. Rose, nine fingers, and Charlie is just expecting something like this to happen. So he's kind of like got his face uh, muzzled as, most as, he, as much as he can so no one could see his features. But uh, Detective Rose recognizes him right off, and he says, Mortimer, by God. And uh, then all the guns are on uh, Charlie. Charlie grabs his, uh, his captor, the lawman that uh, had taken him there, and he describes the guy shaking like an aspen leaf, which is, again, a little bit of the, uh, the criminal lease. Maybe not criminal lease, but we would say shaking like a leaf. Um, it's interesting how the language has changed. Yeah. Ultimately, they get Charlie, and they now know it was Mortimer. He was using a fake name up north, and now he uh, is sent to San Quentin for seven years. That's his sentence. And from all appearances, it looks as though George Rose wants to kill Charlie Flynn mm -hmm. with the likely intent to keep him from talking, right? Yeah, that's, that's probably part of it. Um, pure vengeance, for one. Like, he was beaten and humiliated, and he lost a finger to Charles Mortimer, as, you know, they knew him at the time. But also... Uh, yeah, Charlie knows George Rose's business. Um, he'd have a lot to say if he wanted to say it. And that's part of uh, Charlie's makeup. He has a big thing against turning traitor, as he calls it. Um, in his memoir, he does lots of clever aliases to his fellow criminals that aren't known criminals. Um, now, tracking it through the histories and 
the San Francisco directories and newspapers, I was able to figure out just about all of the aliases. Uh, for instance, he liked to call someone uh, Black Wine, and Black Wine was one of his buddies and was you know part of a lot of the criminal enterprises. Uh, but I was able to figure out that who he meant was Red Wine. And, you know, I was able to, like, find uh, where he lived. I was able to find his backstory. There's a number of those uh, instances where it's like, oh, uh, Charlie's being a little bit cagey at this point. But with some digging, you're able to figure it out. Right, right. So he ends up serving some prison time at San Quentin. And he gets out in 1872. Do, do I have that year right? I think it was 71. Yeah, he uh, he gets out. He was able to get um, like one year off for good behavior, and he had good behavior in prison. Uh, he uh, joins the tailor shop, um, and he's able to make a little bit of money. Um, San Quentin is actually angry at like Nevada State Prison because their prisoners are able to make more money. You know, and everyone's kind of bitter about that. Uh, there are a number of attempted jailbreaks. Charlie doesn't participate in any of them. He does get on the bad side of basically the warden, though they weren't calling the term warden back then. And Charlie had kind of sized this guy up, and the warden wanted to hire Charlie or induce Charlie to turn traitor on the uh, guy that George Rose had arrested and got sent across. Sent across is the slang for go to San Quentin because you got to be sent across the bay, San Francisco Bay, to go into San Quentin. Whatever the case, Charlie will not turn traitor on his fellow criminals. Um, so the warden doesn't like that, and they have a little bit of a cat and mouse where Charlie is threatening to expose that the warden wants him to be a stool pigeon to the press, and therefore the warden in the final few months has him locked in solitary. Um, and Charlie actually likes that the best because then he doesn't have to deal with anybody. Ultimately, he's let go um, only having served six years, but then he's got the same problem. Uh, he is known as Charles Mortimer, the uh, highwayman and pickpocket and all-around thief and bad guy, and people aren't going to want to hire him. He tries he tries to get a job at various tailoring shops, um, but he knows that once they check his references, it's not going to go anywhere. So he turns back to what he does best. He becomes a criminal once more. You know, as I'm reading your book, I'm wondering, and we've talked about this on the show before numerous times, you know, this is the era when people can pick an alias and just disappear. But he must really have loved California, right? <laughs> Everybody's after him in California, but he stays, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wrote the book, the meat of it, in Charlie's mindset. In the epilogue, I kind of revert to myself and, you know, I explain that, okay, this guy is a psychopath and, you know, the heroes of the stories are the lawyers and lawmen. But writing it from his perspective, you know, or like really through his eyes. So many times I was like, sober up, sail back to Boston with money in your pocket, you know, and uh, live a normal life, you know, go back to mom, go back to your family. 
um, especially when things get really bad. Um, throughout the first half of the book, Charlie's not the guy you want to meet in a back alley, but he's also not the guy um, that you actually want to hang. He's not the worst guy in the world. He is, when he commits highway robbery, he's not shooting people, uh, with the exception of Rose, who we would he would say is kind of like in on the game and was fair game. He's not actually uh, beating people to an inch of their life. Uh, he seemed to have a code that he worked by. But uh, he keeps pushing it in the second half of the book, particularly because uh, he starts dating a kleptomaniac and they get into wilder and wilder capers and they can barely control each other. Yeah, yeah. So Charlie meets his match in a woman named Carrie Jones and they get into some serious trouble together. Uh, if you believe what he writes about her in his memoir, she's just as bad as he is. S some of the really terrible stuff she does, the accounts come from him. So we do have to keep that point in mind. But in general, they, they seem to be quite a pair. They've got a lot in common, uh, both professional criminals. They have the same goals and dreams on the same path towards prison. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had to analyze their relationship and it was one of those things where crazy attracts crazy. Um, you know, they got together very quickly and they very quickly uh, saw a match in each other. One thing I also had to do is, again, this was from Charlie's memoir. So I had to take a look at his point of view because he can be very uh, down on Carrie and he puts a lot of blame of what happens to them both on Carrie. So I had to track Carrie as best as I could. And uh, she was from a little town uh, north of San Francisco called Healdsburg. And the Healdsburg Historical Society had actually done great research, terrific research, uh, to which I thank them on the in the acknowledgments. Um, and I also wrote to them and expressed my gratitude, they were able to determine uh, Carrie's backstory. And she was trouble from the uh, beginning um, with a, a lot of theft and uh, a lot of uh, broken relationships and a very difficult situation uh, with her family. But then I had to go further and I had to track her later. And once, uh, once we don't see her as part of Charlie's memoir, uh, we see her also as a kleptomaniac. Uh, she is pulling the same stuff that uh, Charlie would pull and the same uh, crimes, uh, pickpocketing and worse, that they were doing as a couple. Um, but they're a fascinating team. Uh, Charlie teaches her the ropes. Um, she's uh, very young when they meet. And they, you know, embroil on a life of crime you know, like a predecessor of Bonnie and Clyde, they are a two-person crime spree, all of themselves. And, and their actions escalate to murder, and they seem to focus their energy on wealthy and vulnerable women, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of it is born out of uh, Carrie's uh, jealousy and uh you speak vulnerable. Uh, they were uh, prostitutes, ladies of the night. And that was Carrie's vocation as a soiled dove when they first meet. Uh, my favorite line in the book was uh, the two lovebirds, Charlie a jailbird, 
and carry a soiled dove migrated north. Um, but yes, that's the case that uh, Carrie was a soiled dove when they met. And she seemed to resent her position and she seemed to take it out on people who had the same profession. And there was a lot of anger and jealousy of what Charlie would see in such a woman. And he kept claiming, I see them only to rob them, but she would not believe it. And it always uh, was the case that things would escalate beyond Charlie's control. And he should have seen it coming. He couldn't control this situation. But as we've noted, he always pushed his luck rather than quitting while he was ahead. He kept going and he seemed to think, uh, because he was very narcissistic, he seemed to think that there was no situation that he couldn't fight his way out of or talk his way out of or simply do the time. And even when the police are putting the screws to him, he comes up, he concocts like seven different schemes in order to free himself and tries every trick in the book and invents several on the spot, uh, which is one of the things that makes him a very fascinating character. Uh, we get to see that guy, that mindset of you know being so slick, attempting all of these schemes and watching what happens. Right, right, yeah. And it is difficult to know what the real truth is when you have to draw so much of the story from his own words. And he obviously did not live an honest life. But, but there are two murders that happen almost back to back. And the first is of a French woman. Yeah, French, French Caroline was her nickname. Uh, these happen in uh, May and September of 1872. And uh, French Caroline uh, was having a lot of trouble uh, with her boyfriend slash pimp, Henri Beck. And I actually spoke to a distant relative uh, descendant of uh, French Caroline, who was French and lives in France and was able to give me some of her backstory as well. And uh, I had all sorts of sympathy for Caroline. Um, she was trying to uh, sneak some money into a French bank um, because the arguments that were erupting between her and Henry uh, were brutal and violent. Um, so it looks like she was doing everything she could to get out. And on one particular night in San Francisco, uh, she's at a bar and she's talking about her troubles to the bartender when she noticed that a stout but good-looking man, despite the scars, is checking her out. And this is a thing she's very used to. And so she uh, sidles up next to the guy, and they have a conversation. And, of course, it's Charlie. And French Caroline wanders back to her place after a while, and after a decent interval, uh, Charlie follows and walks in and Charlie uh, isn't going to put in his memoir um, exactly everything that happened. Interestingly with Carrie, he does talk a little bit about sex, which uh, you know, for the 1800s, you didn't really do at one point. He talks about refreshing the inner man. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> uh, 
But whatever the case, uh, Caroline is naked and in his lap and they're both drinking and eventually they go to bed together. He's maybe a, a little Victorian in that sense. He doesn't give all the description, but he stumbles back and Carrie is furious with him. Where have you been? And he says, well, I, uh, I tried to rob this lady um, and sure, you know, like uh, I was at her place and she fell asleep, but then, you know, I looked around and I couldn't find anything. And the idea is that like, well, you're not going to, she took all the money she could squirrel away to the bank. Uh, but Charlie didn't know that. Uh, but Carrie is not satisfied. And Charlie mentions, well, she was about your size and figure. And I'm sure Carrie hated hearing that. But at the same time, she was like, okay, well, free clothes. Let's go rob her. And Charlie can barely control himself. So how is he going to control Carrie? And he's completely drunk. So they take the whiskey and Caroline's place is uh, on the edge of Chinatown and they wander inside. They try to look as if like, uh, oh yeah, we just belong here. This is like the thing we do in case anyone was looking. And uh, I'm not going to go into the particulars of it, but uh, at the end of it, you know, like let's say a half an hour later, Charlie and Carrie walk out and they believe that Caroline has merely been knocked unconscious, um, but such is not the case. And uh, things will get worse from there, but mostly initially for Henry Beck, who was arrested um, for what happened with uh, poor Caroline. Back again after a quick break. And we have returned for the final time. And as you have already mentioned uh, from the title of your book, we know Flynn's ultimate fate. And as he writes this memoir with the understanding that the end is nigh, why not enjoy the spotlight, right? Uh, Bask in the glow of celebrityhood. Well, that was partially it. One of the things he does in his memoir is he puts as much as he can, believably, he lays it at Carrie's feet um, because he is so upset with her for getting him and her to some extent as well into this horrific mess uh, that he's doing everything he can to, you know, get away from. But his ultimate, um, like, okay, this is my last card I can play is to write a tell-all just before the execution um, and he devotes himself to it. And it turns out he's a very good writer. Now, as I said, the memoir itself was oddly put together. It started with the uh, the lawyers talking about the court case. And then it goes 40 pages into his childhood, which no one's really going to get through. And I, uh, I go a lot into his uh, childhood, but I do it only after the revelation uh, when he's in jail that Charles Mortimer is actually... Charles Flynn uh, from the Boston area. Um, so I put it in in the, uh, in the right time. And then like a good movie, it's like you get the, uh, the backstory episode, which also leads into the one guy that still loves him, which is his brother. And his brother, Will, uh, who was a Union soldier, travels the length of the country to Sacramento from Boston Boston area. I think they're in Lynn, Massachusetts. And his goal is to spring 
his brother Charlie one way or the other. Um, so again, that's just one of the cards Charlie is able to play uh, where he gets the word out um, that, okay, this is where I am and I'm in Sacramento city prison. Come get me if you can. And his brother certainly tries. Right. Yeah. And I know you don't want to get too much into the details of the murders, but it's not the murder of French Caroline that led to his execution, but a second one. The victim was Mary Gibson. I'll go into this one a bit because this is the, uh, this is the key moment where we can't really be on Charlie's side. He, uh, he and Carrie are scoping out a joint. It's a saloon slash grocery store slash one woman bordello run by a gal named Mary Gibson who had fought against the railroads and the railroads wanted to uh, build on her property. And she said no. And it ended up with a big lawsuit. And though she didn't quite win, she did get a big settlement, but she didn't trust the banks and everybody knew it. Everybody knew she kept money on her person and she kept money at her place. She was very well liked. Uh, She had a lot of uh, brothers and sisters, brothers-in-law. She was not particularly well-liked by lawmen. She'd been arrested for selling to uh, American Indians, but they knew her, and you know they would protect her if they had to. But Charlie wanders in first and scopes out the joint, and then Carrie wanders in afterwards, and there's Mary, and says, like, oh, aren't you a cute couple? Like, Give the man a kiss. If you don't, I will. And uh, Carrie gives Charlie a big old smooch. And there's a bunch of patrons around. uh, But Mary leads them to a back room where she says, you can drink wine and make all the love you want. I'll be back later. And it's looking like Mary setting up a menage a trois scenario uh, for money. And eventually she shoes out all the other patrons. Charlie's not really into it. He says, like, look how dirty everything is. And Carrie says, no, I caught like a look. There's like gold in her pocket. You know, we can get this. Charlie tries a number of ways to like get out of it. He like wanders outside. He starts singing with like some drunk guy who's wandering around. The drunk guy insists that they go to Mary's for a drink. They go in there, eventually gets them out. Finally, it's just the... uh, the three of them and the ladies are, you know, like winking and trying on dresses and such and like come to the back room. And Charlie says, okay, I got to do one thing first. So he goes to the front door and he gets out his skeleton keys, uh, which is part of, you know, like his uh, thieves uh, material. And he's about to shut the door when he hears Mary call out and says like, so that's your game. And Carrie cries out, Charlie. So Charlie runs to be the hero and uh, they're in a scuffle. Carrie has her hand in Mary's pocket and Mary has her grip on Carrie's arm. And, you know, I was like, okay, I've caught you red handed basically. And Charlie says, okay, make nice. It's like, no, I want to, you know, figure out who this is and what's going on. So Charlie does his move where he tries to catch Mary around the throat. Carrie gets away Uh, Eventually, Charlie takes a tumbler full of beer and smashes it across Mary's forehead. Uh, Mary falls into her, rakes Charles Mortimer's uh, cheeks, and he's bearded at this point. He's got the red beard. 
tears out like half of his beard. Mary falls. Carrie uh, stabs her a few times with like a broken shard or a pen knife and ultimately uh, slits her throat. And here's where it's like, okay, this is really bad, but here's where it turns. Uh, Carrie says, you know, she steps on Mary's neck. And then she says to uh, Charlie, now, Charlie, don't you think I've got any nerve? And uh, says, well, now you do it, Charlie. And Charlie does so. So he participates in the murder. And uh, that's where everything goes completely to hell. I mean, being Charlie being Charlie, he can, comes up with a drunken plan. He decides to, uh, after they lug some stuff um, back to the hotel, he decides to continue going out on the town. And ultimately that day he's going to be, or that evening, he'll be in six bars. He shoots dice. He gets in an argument uh, with a bartender who slaps him across the face, knocks him down and kicks him in the face. And then the police show up and the police have been tracking Charlie, but they'd lost track of him this day because he's that notorious. And they see him like, you know, lying there bleeding blood on his pants, but it all seems to have stemmed not from the murder of Mary Gibson that they don't know about yet, but from the big guy, you know, slapping him and kicking him. So they drag him back to his hotel room where Carrie's at and bid him good night. And Bob's your uncle. Uh, so Charlie, even in his drunken stupor, was able to come up with an alibi. Like, no, the blood and, you know, my disfigured face is all because, you know, like I got into this bar fight. And what kind of person, like, kills a woman and then goes out drinking and, you know, shooting dice and having fun? So he's already, like, building, you know, this whole scenario uh, for his future lawyers if they can't get away. But but obviously it, it wasn't a well planned out crime yeah. they went into a crowded saloon there were a lot of people who, who saw them yeah it was a uh, it was a wild crime of passion but you know it's like i mean how do you say well your honor like i was just planning to rob her you know like i didn't mean for it to get out of hand but you know like what was his argument going to be sure i stepped on her neck but maybe she was already dead who knows <laughs> so like, I don't yeah and they rob her but still miss, I think it was uh, $2,500 in gold coins sitting on the bureau, right? Or something? Yeah. Yeah. She had all her money there. You know, when the police, uh, you know, the next day, once her body is discovered and she lives on like, a, there's like scatlings. Um, so it's like the second floor, but it's really like one floor. It's just raised up high. Like blood has pooled through the wood, you know, and it's like a, the whole thing is just horrific. Um, once the police arrive, they find uh, the bag of money. And yes, if uh, Carrie and Charlie had been in their right senses and hadn't just murdered a woman, perhaps they could have, you know, done the original plan and just robbed her. But uh, that's that's not what happened. A, uh, a smarter, more sober Charlie Flynn, maybe. Um, but really, when he got out of San Quentin for the last time, and he made a small attempt to go straight and then it was more profitable and wilder uh, jobs. And, you know, I titled the book hanging Charlie Flynn because it almost was inevitable uh, the whole time. You know, he, uh, he pushed everything 
way too far. We talked about uh, Black Bart a little earlier. You know, Black Bart managed to have a uh, career as a highwayman around the same time. They were operating in the same places around the same time. And to the best of our knowledge, Black Bart uh, never killed anyone. You know, so there's a, there's a difference there between Black Bart and Charlie. So after Mary Gibson is murdered, according to Charlie, Carrie insists on absconding with all of these clothes. So they're carrying piles of dresses and also a, a trunk, which they eventually have to abandon because it's too heavy. And it's this dark, uh, comedic scene almost. And they're, they're bickering the whole time, you know, and Charlie says, you know, damn the trunk, you know, let's throw it into the slough or slough rather, you know, their relationship was just, uh, you know, it's one of the things that drives the book, um, you know, cause you got all that, uh, all that dialogue, all that passion, all that energy, you know, this relationship of like mentor and apprentice, they try to go straight, they meet her family uh, they get kind of a cold welcome, but they end up uh, doing a lot of crimes with Carrie's uncle, uh, who's a pickpocket as well. They're at uh, the 140th uh, birthday of George Washington, which is celebrated in San Francisco by placing the cornerstone of the new city hall. And Charlie describes like every pickpocket in the city is out because it's a huge crowd. It's a big celebration. Everyone's getting drunk and silly and uh, a lot of money is uh, changing hands and changing pockets. Yeah, that's it's great for all the drama. And I, Charlie was definitely on top of the world at that time. Uh, but then it all comes crashing down. And I think of it a little bit. This was a this was a window into old San Francisco, and it's a window that you don't usually see because you never see the criminal underbelly um, so fleshed out. But it's also a window that closes when I say. It all crashes down. Well, it was all destroyed in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. You can't really revisit those old places. Um, so what you can do, if you really want a sense of old San Francisco, is you can read Hanging Charlie Flynn uh, to see what San Francisco and California was like at that time. Um, as, as I was writing the book, I was also uh, trying to give a bit of an urban studies I was trying to connect why the Columnus Road that they pull a caper on was important because it was a lifeline between Sacramento to the Southern Mines. Um, I was trying to give people a sense of what it was like. Yes, yes, for sure. I, I definitely got that sense. So it, it doesn't take police long to connect these two to Mary's murder. Um, Mary had some of his hair as you said, uh, clenched in her, her hand. And then there's the trial. But it doesn't last long, right? Just a few days. Well, uh, you know, Charlie being Charlie, he ends up in three different trials uh, because Henry Beck is on trial in San Francisco and Charlie's on trial in Sacramento. And one of his biggest capers, in fact, his biggest caper that we haven't touched on much, was the Santa Cruz treasury job that he pulled a little bit after he got out of San Quentin the last time, and he hatched while in prison, and they have arrested the treasurer. Uh, the cops thought it was an inside job. But eventually it all comes out. 
because a certain soiled dove, to save her own neck, starts talking. Along with that, uh, Chief of Detectives Isaiah W. Lees, um, considered by many, you know, like the best lawmen in California, had started to figure out it might not be Henry Beck after all. And he started uh, scouring the San Francisco pawn shops for French Caroline's missing jewelry. And he finds a piece of jewelry and he's able to connect it to Mortimer that way. Um, So ultimately, he's not found guilty for the Santa Cruz treasury job, but uh, the treasurer himself was found innocent. But Charlie will be, uh, he'll be sentenced ultimately in Sacramento, though his defense attorney does a wild, probably wild isn't the correct term, a uh, admirable might not be either. The uh, other lawyers and lawmen thought he went too far. He goes to bat for Charlie with everything he has. Um, His closing speech makes it seem, it opens the window to Charlie being insane. And Charlie's been trying to cement that by acting completely nuts. He opens the door that like this, if anything, it was a crime of passion. No one would concoct a murder like this. You know, this is not murder in the first degree. It couldn't. And also he was like extraordinarily drunk and he's singing songs in the bar. Uh, You know, like none of this makes any degree of sense. And he also tries to pin the murder of French Caroline elsewhere that Carrie, who spilled the beans on that, was probably financially motivated. Um, So he creates all these arguments that seem actually pretty good. Um, And you could see it swaying a jury. But ultimately, Charlie, Charlie was known to be Charlie. Everyone recognized this guy as a con man at this point. He'd gone too far. He'd been arrested so many times. If you count it, uh, he's arrested over 10 times in the course of his criminal career. Um, So word was out. And the last card Charlie gets to play is his brother comes in and tries to spring him and uh, shot down in Sacramento. And that's what I opened the book with. I opened the prologue uh, with uh, uh, Will Flynn uh, coming in to save his brother. And Will Flynn sadly cannot. Another brother will show up, and everybody's worried that Frank Flynn, also a Union veteran, uh, is going to try the same thing. But at this point, Frank knows better. Uh, Charlie witnesses the death of his brother from his cell, right? Yes. Um, so uh, Will uh, steals a ladder and he uh, hops across the boilers and the roofs and he drops in. It's something like 1 a.m. It looks like Will's plan was to sneak into jail. He rings the pull bell and uh, one of the deputies comes out and doesn't see anybody. So Will's got the opportunity to shoot the deputy because the deputy looks for the intruder in the wrong area and he's got his gun out. He's got a map of the jail, does Will. He's got a knife. He's got money if they can get a quick getaway. He also figures if he gets shot and killed, he's kind of put the clues you'll need to identify him as Will Flynn. He's got like uh, papers from his barbering shop that he's partnered with his brother, Frank, back in Lynn, Massachusetts. So... Ultimately, uh, the deputy spots Will in the moonlight. He shoots him through the teeth over his mask, shoots him through the chest. Then the deputy's uh, gun jams. And Will manages 
bleeding to stumble into the jail and he's groaning. He's making a bloody mess of everything. And he gets right in front of Mortimer's cell, of Charlie's cell, when he hits the brick wall and collapses and dies right in front of his brother. It's an extraordinarily powerful, emotional scene. And the other prisoners attest that Mortimer had his boots on, that uh, they had this planned. Mortimer will have his boots off by the time the other deputies rouse before uh, they get Will to Will's body and realize that, yes, he's dead. And Charlie will act like, I had no idea who that was. Uh, there was no sort of plan. And uh, he blames the uh, deputies for not figuring out that Will was in town and meant to uh, spring Charlie. And there was some indication that they had a pretty good idea. So in this case, uh, Charlie might be correct that, yeah, the Sacramento police could have played that a little bit better and avoided some bloodshed. Right, yeah. So th- there's still a ton from your book that we, we weren't able to even touch upon. Uh, I, I do want to ask you this. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that you are the incoming editor of the Wild West History Association Journal. When does your uh, first issue come out? Yeah, it's uh, quite an honor and a thrill to be the incoming editor for the Wild West History Association Journal. Uh, Roy Young is the outgoing editor, and he's been mentoring me. He's been showing me the ropes, and we've got a lot of great ideas. The first issue comes out mid-March, and it's an 80-page magazine uh, thereabouts. Um, It's filled with color. It's filled with uh, the stories you'd want, you know, Wyatt Earp, Jesse James, Billy the Kid, the old standards. Um, But we've also got a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, boots on the ground. Um, there's some really interesting stuff I'm looking at to track Theodore Roosevelt's uh, movements when he was going after the boat thieves with his posse um, in the Dakotas. I'm very excited by it. And I've got a lot of uh, great people that are writing for the journal. Uh, we got Chuck Parsons, we got John Bosenecker. Uh, Roy Young, of course, uh, James B. Mills, who did a terrific biography of Billy the Kid. It's really a spectacular cast, and I'm quite honored to be doing it. Oh, that's great. I, I've had John Bosenecker on the show twice, and he's he's a great guest. Well, well, congratulations on the job. Thank you. That's super. And I will put a link to your publisher's website in the show notes where listeners can buy the book. And as a reminder, George Hurst, Silver King of the Gilded Age, is also out there for people who haven't had a chance to read that book yet either. And thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it so much. Always fun to be here, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to Matthew Bernstein. He is the author of Hanging Charlie Flynn. The Short and Violent Life of the Boldest Criminal in Frontier, California. This is another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.